Welcome to this episode of Let's Connect for Good. I'm Alicia Sternberg-Janos, and I'm your host. I want to thank Lucas Crump of Wild Hudson, an intentional community of people sharing space, interests, values, and resources. I can attest to that. Thank you, Lucas, for having us, and maybe he'll be able to pop in later. Now, this episode is one where it might be important to make sure it is age-appropriate for consumption for those around you. As you know, Let's Connect for Good was created so I can introduce you to people who are doing amazing things for others and are connectors who care. Sometimes connection is derailed due to circumstances that are beyond our comprehension. It is estimated that one in three females and one in four males will suffer from sexual abuse during their lifetime, which is staggering. The long-term effects are numerous, and if left untreated due to low incident reporting, the results can be debilitating. The National Association of Independent Schools reports that children who are sexually abused are at significantly greater risk for post-traumatic stress and other anxiety symptoms, depression, substance abuse, and suicide attempts. These psychological problems can lead to significant disruptions in normal development and often have a lasting effect, leading to dysfunction and distress well into adulthood. Jamie Forbes was sexually abused at his boarding school in Massachusetts in the 1980s. Boarding schools are associated with wealth and privilege, so one would assume it must be the perfect place for a child, right? The circumstances were far from it. Jamie went through disconnection And it wasn't until years later, after he was married with children, that he decided it was time for him to speak out and confront his abuser. Unfortunately, sexual abuse is still a major problem at many independent schools where they actually have the freedom to address this issue, but are in need of real overhaul in order to provide a safe space. It is a larger issue at public schools as they do not have the resources nor the freedom but there is clearly a need. What is important to highlight is that sexual abuse happens to people from all socioeconomic backgrounds. This episode will introduce you to Jamie and the nonprofit he founded, Learning Courage, in an effort to bring school communities together to collaborate and strive to reduce incidents and improve responses to sexual misconduct and abuse in K through 12 schools by guiding and advising on best practices and innovation, which will empower everyone to proceed with courage. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you. So can you speak a little bit about your experience, as much as you want to at this point, and how it shaped the ethos of learning courage? Sure. Uh, So I went to Milton Academy, as you mentioned, and that's just south of Boston, And so I was sexually abused by a male teacher from Milton Academy. The abuse started on a bike trip that he led through, um, through Italy. And I was on that trip with some friends, thankfully. Uh, Unfortunately, the abuse continued when I returned to school. And I told a few people, friends and close friends and family, it was not something that uh, I talked a lot about. Although, uh, did let the school know, and the teacher unfortunately remained at the school while I was a student. Fast forward to 2016, 
when the Boston Globe Spotlight team did a long piece about the overwhelming number of incidents of sexual abuse in independent schools. And in response to that, uh, Milton Academy, like many schools, actually sent a letter out to all of their alums asking if they had any experience of abuse to share that with the school. And initially I thought, why would I do that? There's really, uh, that sounds like a horrible experience. And um, and thankfully, as I discussed this with my wife, she helped me think about it in a different way. And ultimately, I began to see it as a way of helping others. By sharing my experience, I could actually use my story to help others. And that became incredibly motivating to me. So I responded to the school and went through what became a nine-month-long investigation that unfortunately uncovered uh, well, a total of 19 uh, survivors from the same perpetrator and, and, and several other incidents. And while I had a really good experience reconnecting with the school during the investigation, and in particular with the head of school and, and the board, uh, I observed quite a few places where what I saw were missed opportunities to rebuild trust with me. And I could only assume that was also true for others. Uh, who had participated in the investigation. And so I shared my observations with the head of school and he said, you know, we've got some work to do in responding to all of the findings from this investigation. And do you think you can help us? You know, that really struck a, a nerve for me in a positive way, recognizing that I was really motivated to try and help others. And so I began working with the school and, uh, and then started working with other schools to help them understand how to create a safe space for survivors. It, through that process, what I, what I learned and observed was that while most schools really uh, were working very hard to try to do the right thing, they really didn't have the resources to know how to do the work well. And there was no place that was providing those resources, no place that actually had the breadth of knowledge that would provide all of the information that schools needed to do this work well. And and by well, I mean in a uh, survivor-centered way, in a way that understands the nature of trauma, and in a way that is focused on resilience. And so, that to me became the vision and ultimately is is what learning courage is all about so we uh, are a nonprofit membership organization and we work with school leaders k through 12 school le- leaders today in independent schools but ultimately in all k through 12 schools and and we partner with them to help them reduce incidents of sexual abuse and to respond appropriately when they happen so that's our that's our focus, and that's the that's the story about how we came to be. No, well that 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 clearly outlines when you when you've been in something and you've experienced it. You're, there's no one in a better position than to go back to a place, and you have two choices: you can turn your back and say, "Oh, they're just never going to get it," or, "Wow, uh, there's this huge opportunity to." to help them along the process and try to 
bring people together that really want to have these conversations and just don't know how to go about it because there's so many sort of disparate pieces of this. I mean, it's, it's starting with how do you have these conversations with students? It's, you know, and, 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 and end to end from the board to every single person that's within that community. How do you begin these conversations? And you're trying to centralize a decentralized thing, right? It's, it's, it's really providing ongoing help in these schools. And that, and that looks different, doesn't it, for every school you go to? It's not a one-size-fits-all, is it? It's definitely not, although there are certainly some commonalities and particularly focused around the prevention side of things. And that's where you know we can have the greatest impact because if we can reduce incidents from happening... Obviously, there are fewer people walking around with trauma that um, they either uh, hold or um, begin their process of healing. And um, and I know from personal experience that that is, well, in its most benign form, incredibly distracting and and very detrimental to all of the things that are really important about learning how to be a a professional and a grown-up. It's true. It's stunting in in some way. It seems to me, when hearing what you said, uh, Jamie, it's really important and a, and a great aspect that that learning courage has survivors because it, you are bringing in people that actually have been through this situation. So you're going to understand better than anybody what is needed. And that's something that without the experience, people just don't know. They can think about what it might be. It was it was actually um, an epiphany for me. I, I had undervalued that aspect of having the lived experience of being a survivor. And I realized in my conversations with, with schools and school leaders in particular that I actually knew quite a bit about the survivor experience and that was valuable. And that helped really help me turn some of my uh, thinking about my experience of abuse into more of a positive experience. Not that I thought of the abuse as positive, but I was able to reframe what it had given me in addition to all of the negative consequences I was able to recognize the experience that I gained from it as an opportunity, again, to help others. So I just, I, I found that really interesting. And in fact, it made me feel pretty good. In, in the intro to this podcast, I allude to the fact that I had a traumatic experience. And it wasn't, it was a one-time event. And I've spoken to Jamie about it. So, um, but it, it happened in college and it was freshman year on the heels of a family member dying and I wasn't myself and I fell into the situation and I don't even remember really the incident itself except for waking up from it. And so I thought it was really important to, to, to talk about that and to have conversations started because there weren't places where people were going to go and talk about it. And in the state that I was in, there was no way I was going to talk about it. So that's another reason why I think so many people are trying to get these conversations started now, because it's a cross-generation discussion now. And I think getting people that are our age range, 
<laughs> yours and mine, and, and and talking about it because people that are younger are are a little bit better about discussing these things and being more open about these talking about these things and. And we, we need to start talking about these things in schools and making it okay so that by the time we get to college, we have a voice set that we know that it's okay, we can find help, we can find resources. And we didn't have that, Jamie, right? We just didn't have that back then. Well, it's, it, it, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I often tell the adults that I'm speaking with, it, that it's the the adults are really uh, the ones getting in the way of making progress in this work um, because it's an uncomfortable topic for many of us to talk about, uh, in some cases even to think about, and yet that's what it requires in order to make an impact, uh, in order to improve the way we um, we deal with these issues and we reduce incidents. And and. Kids are actually really hungry to have these conversations because particularly in, in the wake of Me Too, they are really interested in figuring out how to protect themselves and their friends. And uh, in many cases, they're frustrated that they don't have the tools and they, they, they are not able to have comfortable conversations with adults. Um, and again, it's the adults typically who are really impeding the progress. So th that's a lot of where our focus lies. Well, it's important. And, and I, I think where you're consulting is, is truly important. And there's opportunity to sort of even just keep expanding with what you're offering uh, through your consulting. You know, you break it down. And then if you want to speak to it, please do. It's but your trauma and resilience, bystander intervention, boundaries and mandatory reporting, Signs and Symptoms of Sexual Misconduct and Abuse, How to Help Get Help, and Sexual Surveys, The Intersection of Sexual Misconduct, Power, and Identity, and, and trying to get leaders aligned. So those are areas that are really very, very important because you, it, you start thinking about how do you get these conversations started about trauma? Are you going to be victimized as a whistleblower if you if you don't understand who you're supposed to go to or how you're supposed to talk about it, even within the faculty, right? And then what are boundaries? What are boundaries? Because it looks a lot different at boarding schools. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? But I think these are key issues that need to be discussed and built on in secondary schools. Well, absolutely. Uh you know, one of the things that we start with in our conversations with schools when they become a member uh, or in the process of becoming a member is helping them understand that in order to really do this work better and reduce incidents, it's not a check the box training situation. Oh, we've done the bystander intervention or we've done the boundary training. That's akin to saying you've brought in a really compelling speaker during Martin Luther King Day and say you've, you know, you've done all you need to do for creating a safe space for everyone in the community. That's, that's not what a DEI plan is all about. So we really talk about comprehensive work. Training is just the beginning of our work. And then we also uh, provide a lot of conversation questions and really find ways to uh, work with the, the teachers to integrate conversations into their curriculum. And really, you know, as I mentioned, it's it's those adults oftentimes that are in the way of 
having these conversations and they, so the adults need the tools too. And the more the adults have these tools, the more comfortable they become over time having conversations with students and engaging them. So it becomes ultimately more comfortable over time. And that's really our work is, is to have ongoing conversations as opposed to a moment in time and then moving on. Well, typically, as we know, on this on this podcast, we usually have the special guest come in out sort of more to the end and have them engage. But because this topic is really, really important, I think it, it's great to get the perspective of lots of people. So our special guests today are Adele Myers and Dr. Tracy Alloway. And we would just be so excited if they join in the conversation now, pulling you in earlier than expected. So can each of you give us one sentence about who you are, what you're doing? So welcome, Tracy and Adele. Well, thank you so much for having us both, for having us all, uh, Alicia. I'm Dr. Tracy Alloway. I'm a licensed psychologist and an author. A lot of my research looks at the brain and how it responds both in points of memory, but also in the context of mental health. So I've looked specifically at uh, depressive symptoms and more on the proactive side of things. What can we create as buffers to develop a sense of protection, a sense of resilience um, that can kind of create new healthy patterns, new healthy pathways um, in our brain. So looking at things like optimism and agency uh, play a big role in my, in my research and my practice. My name is Adele Myers, and I am a movement-based educator and artistic director of a Miami-based dance theater company called Adele Myers and Dancers, which is made up of female athletes of the heart. And I see the body as a way to communicate very strongly sometimes where words fail. And um, that's both in the process of reading the world we live in and also in expressing who we are through what we do. Well, the reason I thought that they would be wonderful pair, I paired them together and they're making some magical things together. But one of the things that I innately knew that they should meet you because there's so much of what they do individually and together and that I think would be great layers at learning courage because they're coming at it uh, with a, with two different perspectives, but married together are wonderful. And I did see, you know, some of some of the things that you do at Learning Courage. I mean, you do have skits, and you use lots of different modalities to, I think, to help people express. Depend, you know, you 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 make it age appropriate, and you have people interacting, and. If you can talk to them a little bit, Jamie, about some of some of the things you're doing in that regard, I think that would be helpful and see what their what their thoughts are. Sure. Well, I'm really excited to hear your perspective, too, on all of this work and uh, other work that's relevant. Just so you're both aware, Learning Courage is a membership, nonprofit membership organization focused on working with school leaders to help reduce incidents of sexual abuse and respond appropriately when incidents do occur. And uh, because I'm a survivor myself of sexual abuse, we are 
survivor-centric. Our focus is on keeping the survivor at the center of the response when incidents happen. It is an unusual approach for particularly, you know, independent schools that have a history uh, that they want to protect. And historically, the approach, uh, as you probably both know, is, you know, to lawyer up, bring in the reinforcements and protect the institution. And that really serves to deepen the impact from the abuse, deepen the trauma. And what we do is actually help schools understand that, in fact, the survivor's interests are directly aligned with the school's. And if schools can respond in a way that actually supports the survivor, that in fact, it supports their healing and the larger community sees that and feels that. And it's in alignment with all of the teachings that the school is uh, trying to convey. And on top of that, it's less expensive for the school. It takes less time. And certainly the trauma for the individuals is uh, is much less than it would be if there's a, a battle in the process. So it's very simple in its idea and yet challenging to work through because trauma is sticky and, and challenging and uncomfortable. And it takes being willing to sit with it and not be in control. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that and how you're breaking this down, uh, Jamie because I do feel that it is important that there is some type of safe zone and organization for students that is not affiliated with the faculty and with the institution itself. And that is really important. Um, I've seen that in other institutions dealing with other issues that students will say, well, who can I trust? so that I'm not exploited right. or exposed or punished for what just happened to me in that vicious cycle. And so it's really good to hear this, that, you know, in addition to creating this safe zone, as someone who went to boarding school, I think something that can get really blurry in these intimate spaces is boundaries. And somebody mentioned that earlier, you know, those boundaries get blurred very easily between student and teacher and all of this. While I do not have a background in dance therapy, you know, that really helps people process in a way that can help people on the healing end of things. I do believe that sometimes trauma sits in the body and as a mode of healing can be expressed, you know, through creative process. So it's interesting to me in, in hearing you talk about this and I start thinking about especially working with someone like Tracy and people who have very specific experience and expertise of creating a, a, like a workshop where experiences are processed through some kind of within a safe space. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm tripping up over my words because I don't want to use the word presentation. I want to stick with the word expression, you know, almost mm. physical theater expression. And then I'm also thinking about it's such a such a silent experience, trauma, right? And so how do you how it do is. you bring this into the open? How do you have these physical theater performances or something where you're presenting aspects of these experiences without them being exploitative? How do you just get the information? Well, Jamie, there is a, a sort of a, a letter that you write about with those critics 
in your head. Those horrible critics. And and by the way, we all have those critics. But course, I think right. they, they're on steroids when you've been traumatized. So you really, it's impossible to balance what that looks like. And I think I, if you could tell them a little bit about your critics, I think that sort of gets to maybe some of this idea of motion and dance and depending on where you are, how to express yourself. Uh, certainly, uh, when I was in high school and uh, in response really to to my trauma, the chorus of critics, as I call it, uh, that I think we all have, that um, really turned up the volume. And uh, it became so noisy for me that at times it was it was virtually impossible for me to concentrate. Uh, there was just a chorus of everything from uh, voices telling me I wasn't I wasn't good enough. I shouldn't be at the school. I didn't deserve to be there. That I, I just wasn't wasn't good at anything that I was supposed to be doing there, whether it was sports or academics or even even friends. And because I was trapped in the shame of the abuse that had happened, and and not sharing that part of that, the shame is is feeling like, well, I can't I can't tell anyone. That those core that that chorus really just amplified and and so if I had had a productive outlet, um, it would have been incredibly powerful for me. Talk therapy is what is what quieted the the chorus to a certain extent, but not as effectively, I think, as uh, as it might have for other modalities that just weren't available to me, or at least I wasn't aware of at the time. Are you seeing that the schools are? actively looking for as many new modalities, the ones that are engaged with you right now, as many new modalities as they possibly can get so that it is an end-to-end ongoing process so that they can keep up and make sure that they're, they're working with students that, you know, from K through 12, that's a big, that's a, that's a broad group and addressing their needs um, and making sure that they're communicating and able to say to somebody like, hey, I, I really am not feeling like I'm thriving here and actually be able to say that. Yeah, I think it's more of a question, I think, of not knowing what you don't know at this point, because the traditional approach has been, we'll, we'll bring in a trainer and talk about boundary violations. We'll just talk about sexual harassment and assume that the, the information is conveyed when we know that those aren't effective at really communicating and embedding the knowledge. And so in order to do that, we need uh, multiple touch points and we also need different modalities to communicate with different learners. And And so we're actually in the process of really expanding our portfolio of training so that it is more than just training and and all of our training we we try to make as engaging as possible and and also to engage different modalities and we're getting better at that i think we're really just scratching the surface and, and the more we do it i think the more schools will understand oh here is another way to bring this in because they they need help understanding uh, that there's some creativity required in order to do this work well yeah i it's interesting too because I'd like for you just to sort of outline uh, what you at Learning Courage are doing that's more, much more innovative. I mean, I, I, I think you're much more innovative in your approach 
because you are keeping your mind open and communicating with schools and saying, hey, let's let's get together and, and sort of have this think tank where we can, as a group, share information, because that's been another problem in schools, right? They're very much like this because it's a very competitive thing. Who are the students, where are the students going? And instead of who's providing the best scenario for a student, it's how are we going to attract the best student? And so living in a silo like that, you know, again, this whole proactive idea is they can be trendsetters. And so I know that you're, you're working with schools, you have some schools, and you're maybe bringing on some more for this sort of think tank. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I think one of the things that's, that's different about us just from the get-go is uh, that we're survivor-founded and led and focused. And uh, from a school standpoint, that's unusual because they're used to survivors being in an adversarial relationship with them. And that's unfortunate, but it is often the reality. And so that has been initially part of the challenge for me is to convince leaders that despite the fact that I'm a survivor and I'm focused on helping schools understand the survivor perspective and be survivor centric, I also understand the institutional perspective and realities and can work effectively with them. So that that really sets us apart from, from many organizations. And uh, we also have that embedded knowledge and understanding of the lived experience of being survivors. Well, the reality is that we we know uh, we know a lot about this work, but we don't know everything. And in fact, there's a lot we don't know. So uh, we're very collaborative in our approach. And the reality is every school has different situations. Every school has learned differently. And there are lots of other professionals who have that knowledge. And so our focus is really com- combining all of that and creating an environment where there is some collaboration. So that instead of schools being very protective of their knowledge, they're willing to share it. They're willing to be collaborative with other schools when incidents occur and help us understand how they dealt with issues. And so we, we have a, a group that of what we call founding member schools, and they are schools that understand the leadership opportunity to really uh, change the culture at, at schools about uh, sexual abuse. So they have all really committed to working with us to share and learn from each other, engage in the conversation. And it's it's a really exciting opportunity. We also, on the quantitative side, one of the innovative things we're doing, which I'm really excited about, is we're in the process of creating a, uh, a culture and climate survey where we're designing a survey that is designed for both uh, students and faculty members to really understand the attitudes and behaviors around sex and sexuality and identity at the school. Because today that doesn't exist. Schools don't really know, or it's easy for them to say, well, we don't really know what's happening. And the tool is designed to provide quantitative data about what's really happening. And so schools can uh, address that 
risk. And that's part of what we are delivering for schools is the data points that say, this is what's actually happening and let's address that risk in, in creative ways. And it also gives us the ability to aggregate that data so that we can report on it to the broader community. And again, that no one's doing that today. So it's a great way for us to to really share broad community-wide information that can be helpful for everyone. So the surveys that are going out, because I have spoken with some, some of these schools, and they've been looking at, one school in particular looked at interviews over a number of years and lots and lots and lots of students that had gone through their doors and left. And I, when I asked a question, how was how the survey set up and how were you guaranteeing anonymity? Were you telling them that this was anonymous? Because, and the response was no. And so we all know that if people think that they're going to, their name or they're somehow going to be associated with something like this, it, it can be scary and they won't give you real feedback. So how are you guys dealing with what? that, with your survey and, and, um, and tracking and all of that? Well, anonymity is is absolutely vital to getting to getting the right data, to get getting the reality. And if there isn't trust in that, then then the survey data will be flawed for sure. And so the critical thing is to have a firewall between uh, the school and the data itself. Uh, the school does not own the data. The school has access to the data. It's our data. I, the other aspect to that is permission, because uh, at least in secondary school, most of the students are um, are minors, and there's an issue with making sure that the parents provide consent to answer what, in many cases, are considered highly sensitive survey questions. And uh, so we work with we work with schools around that too, because the student that not only do the students need to trust that whatever they're going to share is going to be used in a way that's helpful to them um, and not being used in a punitive way. The adults also need to feel comfortable that it's actually a productive use of time and that they need to be assured that we're not teaching kids how to have sex or encouraging them to have sex, but encouraging them to be safe and respectful and, and creating a safe community. Well, so one of the reasons why I was asking you that, and I don't know, Tracy, if you've had any experience, I mean, you did develop the world's first working memory test designed for, you know, for use by educators. I don't know if you've done any work with uh, surveys or, you know, people that are suffering, students with trauma, and how there's an outreach for that. But I was curious to, to hear if you had done any of that work in the past. Um, not so much trauma directly, but certainly with mental health. And I suppose we we did look at a college-based sample uh, with suicidal intent. So, you know, different kind of trauma, uh, all mental health related. We do preserve anonymity in the surveys and our data collection. So that goal there and that uh, research is actually about to get published. We were looking at uh, almost creating a medical tree. So looking at precursors, what happens beforehand? So if you look at a medical model, you can say, you know, if we walk down this path, then if you have one, two, and three, you're very likely going to experience a stroke or a heart attack. Uh, 
And so we wanted to create something, a similar pathway when it came to suicidal intent uh, and mental health and what was happening beforehand. And we found that self-critical attitudes was the number one predictor, Mm -hmm. Um, specifically the notion that the individual did not feel worthy of love or affection. And perhaps there's an overlap to some of the survivors you're discussing where their brain may kick into survival mode because of what they've experienced. And as a result, part of that as a buffer may feel like that that self-critical volume is turned up. I know you're talking about external critics, but I think a lot of times with mental health, it's the internal critic that tends to scream a lot louder. And here we're seeing that, you know, the impact is, is, is very severe. Um, And again, this population was uh, individuals in their late teens, early twenties. So. One of the reasons, uh, Jamie, that I wanted to have Tracy and Adele here today is because I brought them together on an earlier podcast because they both are helping women be bigger than life and really sort of move away from stereotypes that women get or, you know, you're too emotional, you're this, you're that, you're not. That's, that's the messaging isn't correct, number one. And number two because they're talking about strong women and encouraging women to to move forward and be proud, the conversation that needs to also have is between boys and girls. And with um, Adele and Tracy, I'll let you tell them quickly about what you two are doing individually, Dr. Tracy Alloway with, of course, Think Like a Girl, and Adele with These Women in Space and Time. And you'll hear separately and then probably together, there's an opportunity for conversations in the context of those things to bring in boys. Tracy? Yeah, so I think the first thing when you you talk about a stress response and communication and connection, I think the first thing is that one of the reasons why traumatic experiences hits us so hard is because as humans, we're wired to connect. And that trust and that vulnerability is is broken. And the very foundation of who we are as humans, then it's hard to move forward past that. And I think, you know, a a common stress response when we talk about male versus female is that uh, boys, men, male, the male brain is wired to the kind of fight or flight. And so we may see a different expression of coping and survival kick in. And for females, the typical expression is to tend and befriend, so seeking that connection even more. But if they haven't developed healthy pathways to seek connections, they may find themselves replaying that same pattern in their connections. And so, um, you know, it's something that I work through even in a clinical practice with my clients. I had a client this morning share that, that for her, it was just kind of a mic drop moment where just this last week, she realized that she had experienced trauma as a younger uh, girl and was now sort of playing out these same kind of connections even in her adult friendships and it just hit her. And so I think that's an important distinction to know how we survive, how we cope with that stress response following the event and it can it can be expressed differently for boys and girls. What I'm interested in is very much the mind-body connection and in being drawn to Tracy, I'm working on this project that's called These Women in Space and Time, and it's a dance theater project. And it's based on a personal experience. And since you all are sort of sharing personal experiences, I'll begin with that, because that's how these things begin. So I was walking through a doorway, and there was a man in the doorway who was reading the paper, and we were having a conversation, we knew one another, and then I found myself halfway through the doorway trying to get into the other room that I had shrunk so much so I wouldn't inconvenience him. And in that moment, I sort of made a snarky comment, rolled my eyes, whatever, and then moved on. 
But then I paused and thought, you know, here I am, the head of a female dance company espousing, you know, amplification and advancement of a female empowerment. And I just shrunk. So I didn't inconvenience someone else. And why did that just happen? And I thought a lot about the internalization. What did I just, what kind of social conditioning did I just internalize? And how much of this is because I am being raised as a female in this culture to give up my time and space and power so as not to inconvenience others. And that became the seed for this project. And so some of it is, is looking at ways we think about how women navigate and occupy space and time in relation to others. So that could be through live performance, which is literally the definition of choreography. And then I'm thinking about daily choreographies, how we're moving through the world and what we're internalizing in our minds and our bodies. So then I was interested when I met Tracy to think about having these conversations with women and the various ways that we're having our decision-making happen. Is this coming from our body? Is it coming from our mind? What's, where's this decision-making happening such that I'm making my body shrink? And how can we look at these a little more carefully and start twisting against these uh, internalized norms that we have for this gender, you know, disempowerment? And so that has led Tracy and I to begin working on these series of twist talks, which will be revealed soon, these virtual conversations with, with groups of women. But in the context of, of this conversation, I'm thinking again about this mind-body connection. You know, part of me in this moment, like, wants to take these headphones off, fly to wherever you are, Jamie, get Tracy <laughs> around that same table, right. and just brainstorm. That's right. I move through the world with the body as my, my compass, right? And so as you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, preventative ways that we are so conditioned not to listen to our bodies, who are mm. screaming to us, this is right. dangerous, but we've mm -hmm. muted that. So that's this, these preventative things, right? And then there's also thinking about in the post-traumatic healing process. I, I mean, I'm sorry that Tracy's gone because what I want to know is how does trauma manifest in the body? And as a movement-based educator and as a choreographer, how can I help people get it out and literally express it through the vehicle of what I do as a modality of healing? And I'm also thinking, Jamie, a lot because, you know, I was one of, I was in boarding school. I was at those assemblies. <laughs> so I'm thinking about those dumb plays and movies that people showed us all the time. And you're sitting there like, oh my God, <laughs> right. you're kidding me. Because when, how, when was this made? Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, that kind of thing. And uh, I'm thinking, how do you, yeah. but, but some of the things that we're talking about, how do you, how do you perform this? How do you share this information in those assemblies, because that's where everybody is. There's something about that moment, that's right. right? Where, and almost like in an Avenue Q kind of way, like in an right. edgy way. Agreed, 100%. I think there's there's a lot that I'm very eager to, to have more conversations about and say, you know, I have an expertise from this perspective. How can I help? I just thought that there would be a great overlay with all of you because there is a way to bring boys into this but it's also because you and Tracy come at this from a power perspective and and you can talk about that and make girls feel powerful and I think sharing that conversation 
in a myriad of ways with boys. So they get a sense of how we're wired and we get a sense of what they're thinking about at a young age because then they'll start being able to have conversations about sexuality and, and it's not gonna be taboo, like it's not. And so maybe, maybe one of your best friends is a guy and he stands up for you because he understands now like what he's supposed to do. And I think so much of that is important. And in boarding schools, I was at an all girls boarding school, but I did feel safe there. I never really saw anything, but that doesn't mean it wasn't happening. I just didn't see it. And I, you know, there could have been things going on. I, you know, but it was such a small school. But today they probably, the school that I went to may very well still have all of the things that they did when I was there and haven't moved forward at all. I don't know, but we certainly weren't talking about sex with the with the faculty or the head of school or and the boards and i think the other piece of this is the boards need to not be so closed it's sort of this thing where boards are dictatorial in a way and that has not changed and until boards are willing to actually not be punitive in some way and and want to bring in more of this you know the, everybody's afraid to to say hey you know what we really do need this I think, and, and the way that it's delivered to students has to be, has to be sort of, as Adele was talking about, more creative. And it can be age appropriate. You can get those critics up on the stage dancing, right? And, and maybe that's going to sing to some of the students that are in the audience and, and help them out. So anyway, for me, the reason I wanted to do this was because I know you're, you're putting together a lot of these new modalities. And I just thought, boy, these, you know, Adele and Tracy would be phenomenal, to, to collaborate with and to work on some things with. Well, I agree. I'm, you know, certainly think there's lots more for us to talk about. This is directly in line with what we talk about with our schools is there's not just one conversation and it's not just a moment in time. It needs to be incorporated into the curriculum in different modalities. And uh, there's lots of opportunity. And I think that, the aspect of movement is a really important element that needs more attention in our work anyway. It does. In terms of bringing together, and we did do something, we sort of went off what we normally do um, on, the, on the episode. We kind of were all over the place, which is fine because we were getting to some areas that needed some, some more talking about, I think. And I think it's something maybe we continue a conversation um, after you guys have met up and getting, you know, sort of getting to the source and maybe even getting out to the schools and saying, hey, but, you know, here we are. Here's some ideas we have. Maybe there's some test marketing that can happen. And Adele is talking to another school that we introduced her to. It's a different setup, but also in that whole sort of boarding school world. And I think collectively, if we continue to have conversations and connect and share, we're going to come up with brilliant ways to help students that are in need of help and schools that are in need of help, you know, look, there's no one answer to all of the things that we have, but at least everybody on this call is willing to try. And the sticking your head in the sand approach certainly is not working anymore. I'd love for people that are listening today to reach out to any one of us and, and give your thoughts. What's your experience? Because the more information we have, the more we can build on. You know, we'll keep you updated with what happens going forward with Tracy, Adele, and Jamie. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here. And we look forward to connecting with you again and hearing about what the outcomes are for the organizations. And I do want to also toss out, since we didn't get it in this conversation today, that 
Jamie and Learning Courage are, you know, are waiting in open arms for anybody that would like to have conversations with, with how they can help you um, in your school communities. So thanks everyone for joining us. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you.